All right, so I'm here today with um, Professor Humbert, um, who is here at the CU Boulder campus, and he has been working with the Subterranean Challenge, which has been funded by DARPA to create drones that can go into subterranean environments. Uh, thank you for joining us, Professor. Hey, well, thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it. All right, so why did you originally want to get involved with this project? Well, so I've been doing autonomous robotics most of my career for maybe about 15 or 20 years. And uh, so in my previous work, I focused on maybe smaller robotic systems and teams of heterogeneous systems to do um, ISR and in sort of urban environments and things like this. Uh, but this challenge is particularly interesting because it's underground. And so all the typical things uh, people like to assume, like GPS, so you know your location, uh, communications with different robots and different uh, flying vehicles, uh, lighting, all this sort of stuff that's um, you know, pretty traditionally assumed uh, doesn't exist in the subterranean environment. And uh, so it just really pushes forward um, the, the technical um, and the scientific aspects of things. Um, so for instance, you know, I'm an academia, and so we typically like to work on what we call basic research. So this is stuff that we can create or derive in the lab and, and maybe try to demonstrate on like a benchtop or something. It's a whole different can of worms to go out into the wild and uh, release the robots that you've created to do autonomous things. And so for an academic, it's a, again, it's a bit of a stretch because we're used to doing this more laboratory list uh, work. And so I'd like to, uh, to at least have my students get involved with things like this so they see exactly how things are going. And of course, this program is going to be producing a lot of great technology products and scientific innovations and things like that. But at the end of the day, the real... Um, uh, impact this program is going to have is the, the quality and the training of the, the next generation of field robotics that are coming out that are that are aware of all the different perception and mobility issues and that have solved these things and they're ready to go to companies and start companies or maybe go into academia and, and push further sort of the scientific front so so that's my main interest like I you know I love all the, the theoretical work and I love the laboratory work uh, but I really like deploying things in the wild that's the, the real true test of, of uh, sort of the mark you're making with the work you're doing. Um, a moment ago, you mentioned heterogeneous systems. Um, what does that mean in the world of kind of like engineering and robotics? So it means you have multiple maybe sizes and types of mobility of platforms. So uh, like, for instance, we were just up at this abandoned nuclear facility in Olympia, Washington, and uh, we were deploying uh, ground robots. So we had things that had like four wheels and that do sort of a skid steer kind of uh, sort of mobility mode. Uh, we had tracked robots as well, um, and those ideally would sort of be able to go up and down stairs. Uh, we also had some aerial robots. So... Um, you know, quadrotor-type platforms that can hover and also kind of provide a little bit more 3D awareness. Um, and so, uh, yeah, again, a lot of the projects I've worked on, we, we try to get uh, teams of heterogeneous systems. So, you know, maybe one of those platforms might be really good at certain aspects of mobility, but really to get the full-scale uh, sort of... Um, penetration into like a, an abandoned nuclear facility like that, you need a couple different types of mobility to get to all the different places. Um, with that, what are kind of the um, necessities for the subterranean challenge? What kind of things do you have to come up with and design for um, the challenge? You have your robots, like such as the Husky drones that you've been using, but what other um, parts of the infrastructure design do you have to work on? Yeah, so you name it. It's pretty much everything. So, um, so just to put that in a, this in a context, uh, so when you send these robots into the course or into the uh, the practice or whatever uh, deployment facility, uh, they, they have to be 100% autonomous. 
So they can communicate back to one of the people in the pit crew. That's called the human supervisor. So the robot can send back a map. And of course, the goal of this DARPA subterranean challenge is that DARPA's hidden a couple things kind of throughout uh, the maze. So uh, things like heated mannequins that represent survivors. Uh, in this last one, we had gas leaks, uh, and we had the certain vents that had thermal characteristics that we had to detect. Um, so the first part of being able to, to localize and communicate to DARPA where these things are is keeping track of your own location. And without GPS, that's really difficult. So what you have to do is use the sensors that are on board to try to estimate your position over time as you're kind of going through the maze. Now, this is tough if you're, you're kind of driving around on rough terrain and getting bumped around a lot and have some vibration. So we use sensors on board like um, like an I IMU, so like uh, gyros and accelerometers to kind of, we can integrate the, that, uh, that those signals to kind of give us some position and orientation information. Uh, but then also we have to correct that somehow. And so what we do with the systems we have, we have these sensors called LiDAR uh, sensors. And so these are kind of scanning laser uh, lights that kind of flash the environment and give depth information. And so we can match those depth scans um, in time to kind of tell us how far we've moved or how far we've rotated. And so we use that to correct the integrated values from like the IMU. So that gives us our position, right? And that's just one one difficulty, right? Uh, the next difficulty is communication. So ideally, uh, you've got a team of robots that's going into one of these facilities and um, uh, so RF doesn't propagate very well through rock or stone or things like that. So the second a robot turns a corner, you lose communications with it. And so it's got to have the autonomy piece to be able to kind of go off and explore and build a local map on its own and navigate that map. Uh, but then ideally it can kind of come back and connect to wherever the initial comms were to kind of transmit the map it built as well as the information it found about the environment. So the localization piece is one and then creating some sort of a communications network, um, even though it may be very intermittent between the robots uh, that's sort of the second piece and then I hinted at sort of the third piece which was um, you know how do I map an environment and how do I navigate safely uh, downstairs and around sort of rubble or uh, boulders that might be in a cave or maybe there's mud or water or things like that so all those perception capabilities plus all the compute to be able to generate the maps and generate safe trajectories through all that stuff and then all the low-level control to try to follow those trajectories um, and then the communications to try to coordinate with other robots as well as the human supervisor that's getting all the information that's getting sent to DARPA as well. So all of these problems are made incredibly difficult when you go underground and you lose all of the major modalities in terms of sensing that you're typically used to having. Yeah, so one of the um, one of the issues was kind of like how humans can create those visual maps for the zone, but you need to kind of like replicate that in robots? Right. Yeah, so you can imagine, um, so one of the things DARPA wants, so that when the DARPA folks are sitting at their command post, and uh, what they're getting from the team as it's uh, interrogating that environment is uh, a 3D map of the environment, and then locations of these things like the heated mannequins or the gas leaks they've sort of introduced in that environment. And so that's the situational awareness that, say, a first responder would need. So if I was a firefighter, and all of a sudden I, you know, there's a burning building with a lot of collapsed uh, sort of material, and maybe there's smoke or something like that. So as a firefighter, I would want to have, um, you know, what does the new map look like with all of the collapses and all the other stuff, um, as well as where are the humans in that environment. So instead of having humans go through and try to do all of that and gather all that situational awareness, we let the robots do that. And so each of the robots, it uses the onboard sensors to build up a local map. And then when the robots are in communication range, they fuse those maps and then they send it back to the base station, which gets sent to the DARPA command post. 
real time DARPA sees the map, the 3D map getting built up over time. And then in addition, the, the map that the robots are building uh, for themselves uh, and then sharing between each other, uh, they can use that 3D map to plan safe trajectories so they know where to go and where to explore and where to coordinate. So if I've got one robot that's been disconnected from the comms network and it's sort of exploring around, uh, when it comes in contact with another one, it'll say, hey, here's my map um, and here's the areas I've explored already. So then that way the other robot doesn't duplicate any of that effort and they can kind of jointly or optimally kind of explore a space. All right. All right. So um, kind of like a, it's a collateral project. So you could send a network out and then you could come back with a full map of a system. Yeah, absolutely right. So we basically send our robots out. And so we have a, you know, we've any, anywhere from like three to five robots and we have an hour to go explore the space. And so um, as long as the robots have comms, they're sending back like little maplets, so different pieces of the map and we're kind of reconstructing those at the base station. Um, but yeah, so these things will go out and they'll completely explore the space. And when they come back in the comms range, they, they add all the maps together. And so that's exactly what you get at the base station. Uh, how, how large would you say that this um, kind of like map can get in the hours uh, time slot that you have? Um, how much can be explored? Uh, so quite a few. Like, and it, so, um, so the way the DARPA uh, Subterranean Challenge is structured is that this year we have more or less three different circuit events, one every six months. So in August, we had one last year. We just did our second one, and we've got a third one this August. The first one was the tunnel event, and this was in a, 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 sorry, this is a, a coal mine in Pittsburgh. And these mines are fairly flat and gridded, but they're pretty deep. And so when we deployed our robots at that event, uh, we, they went anywhere from a half a kilometer to like a kilometer and a half inside the mine. Um, and so that's, again, a, a much larger sort of spread out version. We just completed the urban circuit, which was in this abandoned nuclear plant, so it was more of a vertical, like, multi-floor, uh, much more compact. And so if you line those two maps up together, um, distance-wise, the, the urban event was much smaller, but uh, the, there were other difficulties in that one, such as traversing stairs and doing other things like that that we didn't see in the longer one. Um, and then in six months, we've got the natural cave event, uh, and who knows what DARP is going to come up with for that one. Um, and then a year from the August, we'll have our... We, the actual event, like the actual competition. And it'll be some combination of these three pieces, a natural cave, an urban and underground urban, and then a tunnel environment. Um, so, so you mentioned the first challenge, which involved kind of the coal mine and the flatter surface. What was the experience of being there on the ground working um, alongside these robots like? What was it like kind of trying to manage these systems um, and kind of supervising them? Yeah, I mean, so it, it's wonderful. I mean, I'll tell you, my students are the ones that are doing all the work, and I, I've never been more impressed with a group of students that I've ever worked with in my entire life. Um, so, as I mentioned, we're, we're producing the next generation of field roboticists with this program, and that's the, the major impact. But it was absolutely amazing to, to see this. And again, usually your graduate student experience when you're getting your PhD, you know, a lot of times you're sitting in front of your computer and you're doing simulations, or maybe you've, you've got a lab uh, sort of experiment you've kind of pulled together. Uh, but for students to have this opportunity to go deploy robots in real-life situations and actually do search and rescue um, with their robots, uh, it was such a wonderful thing to watch. And so, again, these, these kids are incredibly bright and incredibly talented. And to see them troubleshoot, you know, we're down in the garage like 10 minutes before our, our deployment time, and everything seems to be working, everything's booted up, and then, you know, we get our robots up there, and then one of the sensors will drop out and so you know within three minutes we've got to figure out you know solve that problem get the sensor swapped out or reboot the system or do whatever it is to get everything working right and so just seeing the students kind of work at this pace and work with this level of talent 
and intuition about the systems is absolutely wonderful to watch. So as the, the PI or the, the professor that's kind of overseeing everything, I'm, I just let them do all the wonderful stuff. I just get to watch and see how amazing they are. What's the process like working um, what with what you've seen? What's the process like uh, working on these challenges? Kind of um, how does it... Oh, I was going to say, um, how does it kind of proceed? Like, how does the situation play out? So, um, so in a typical deployment, we'll have, uh, or a typical event, we'll have four different deployments. And there, there's typically been two courses. And then what we do is you deploy for once on each of those courses in the first week. And uh, there's usually 10 to 12 teams that are competing at these things. And so, um, you know, you have your team garage, and that's where you can kind of do any minor tweaks or anything like that. But so at the deployment time, you got 15 minutes to get your robots up there. And then as soon as the clock starts, um, you have one hour to, um, you know, map as much as you can and identify as many artifacts as you can. And so as soon as that clock starts, we start sending our robots in um, and just making sure that they're doing the right things and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we have two one-hour-long deployments in the first week. And then what DARPA does is they kind of reset the courses and they typically make them much harder and they, they put, move the positions of all the artifacts, all the, the mannequins and all of the gas leaks and things. Um, and then we have another run on each course. And then um, uh, the overall score is based on uh, our best run on each course. But again, it typically gets harder throughout the, the, the two weeks there. Uh, but it's again, it's, it's a very, um, you know, it's just, structured as a competition so um, there are you know, a rigorous set of rules and there are DARPA judges and uh, sort of point people down in the pits when you're down there trying to deploy and get all your robots set and everything just to make sure you're um, you know, sort of consistent with all the rules and um, one of the major rules is that once you send a robot in you can't um, you know there's only one person that can actually communicate with it and that's the human supervisor and so like uh, you know for instance you can't sit there with, with three people with joysticks trying to teleop robots and things so the idea is that that's not really kind of consistent with the, um, the the spirit of the competition where we want to have everything completely autonomous where we can send the robots in and on their own they completely map and, and identify all the important information and send that out to the DARPA command post. Um, what other kind of rules are there um, aside from the kind of the one operator rule? Um, are there any other restrictions that kind of put uh, pressure on the team or kind of create a challenge? Yeah, so there's at most you can bring 10 people down to the deployment site and uh, so there's one human supervisor and that's the only person that gets to look at any of the information that's coming from the robots. So, he, so he's got a screen or two and uh, a map's getting built up and so that person can see the map and then that person can see the artifact reports as they're coming in so they know where they're placed and they're also the person that submits the artifact uh, reports to DARPA for the scoring purposes. Now there's a safety officer which is allowed to once the robots come out of the, the the deployment site. Um, if they need to swap a battery or swap a sensor real quick or something like that, you're allowed to do that. So you're allowed, as long as the robot comes off autonomously, you're allowed to, um, to work with it and maybe add a swap a battery in or two or something like that. Um, the other uh, eight people are essentially the pit crew. And so they're primarily responsible for getting the robots up and running and booting them up and then getting them ready to deploy into the, the mine or the, the cave or wherever we're at. Um, so, so there's 10 people there. Now, there, again, there's, uh, you can't, you know, uh, with the ground vehicles, you can't talk wirelessly to them in the pickers. Any interaction with the ground vehicles has got to be cabled. So if we're trying to boot something up, we got to plug a keyboard in and, and do our work and then unplug the keyboard. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of other rules as well. So, um, 
let's see, other things. Uh, yeah, the human supervisor, like I said, is the only person that gets to look at any of the data or communicate with DARPA. And also, uh, none of that data can, can be seen by any of the pit crew as well. So, and, the, and that's sort of in the, the uh, notion that, you know, it's one person kind of, you know, we want one person to be able to deploy the system for robots and to generate all the data instead of having like a group of 10 that's absolutely necessary to do all of it, right? So. All right. Um, so with this, what um, kind of difficulties have you run into while going through the challenges? Um, have you had any kind of significant um, troubles or issues that you found going through? Um, is there any kind of moments that stood out that kind of like showed like the problem solving ability needed? Yeah, absolutely. So it's field robotics, so everything breaks and nothing works, basically. <laughs> That's sort of the mantra. But um, yeah, so we'll have sensor dropouts on different robots. Um, so there's a lot of hardware issues. These are complex systems, and they're running complex algorithms. And uh, so our typical, you know, sort of things that happen, like a sensor will drop out, and, it, you know, if that's not designed correctly in the system, like if it's on a common bus to another sensor, sometimes that takes both sensors out of the equation. So one, one really interesting failure mode we saw this last challenge is that, um, so our robots are, they're building their local maps, but then they're sharing their map with all the other robots. And so one of our robots, one of the sensors dropped off um, on the same bus one of the, the IMUs was on. And all of a sudden its localization capability kind of um, just went to, you know, it, it, was, it was unable to localize. And so um, it was started pasting its uh, unlocalized map into all the maps of the other robots. And that messed with everything else. And so that um, really hindered our ability to, in that particular run to be able to, to go to all the different spaces we need to. Uh, but in field robotics, this stuff happens all the time. Um, and so mobility is also a, a really interesting issue. Um, you know, if a robot gets stuck, how does it get unstuck or why is it getting stuck? And, you know, how do we modify our terrain assessment to understand what to drive over and what to drive around? Uh, all sorts of other challenges, too. And so I think uh, one of the major ones is just time. So we have basically six months between these different deployments. And if you think about it, that's uh, with a group of PhD students who are also taking classes and doing other stuff. Uh, but that's, that's a lot of pressure to put on them to be able to build deployable stuff that we can field in the wild. Right? It's one thing to kind of build one thing up in, in your lab and maybe run it three or four times and you get one good piece of data or something. But here, you know, when we send it in, it's got to work the first time. Um, and so a lot of these harder issues are tough to deal with. Uh, but again, and that, that's part of field robotics that you know these things break and as we go through the competition here one of the things we're doing is really understanding what makes systems robust and uh, you, know, you know you see all these failures and then you, you find solutions to kind of you know maybe you put stuff on different buses that are you know, critical parts um, so a lot, a lot of different uh, things we're learning as we are going as a team through the competition Right. Um, do you feel like there have been any major takeaways as you've been going through the research needed for these um, drones? Do you feel like there's any uh, new um, new kind of discoveries or new um, concepts that you've uh, found um, that can be applied other ways? Yeah, most definitely. So uh, a lot of our strategy and a lot of the, the algorithm and all of those pieces is driven by the research that we do. Um, and so there, there's several other faculty on the project, Eric Frew from Aerospace Engineering, Chris Hackman from Computer Science. Um, we also have another, a number of folks at CU Denver as well. Um, yeah, but so one of the technologies we're really trying to push forward is radar. So 
the LiDAR that I mentioned is a wonderful sensor. It gives this great sort of depth profile of the environment and that we can build these really beautiful maps from it. But the sensors are like $8,000 a piece and they're pretty heavy. It's really difficult to get one of those on say like a flying vehicle. It really reduces your flight time. So millimeter wave radar, which is, you see you see a lot of these sensors and um, you know, sort of unmanned vehicles and sort of the, some, of, some of the auto industry is looking into some of these types of sensors, but they're a lot lighter weight. Um, but the disadvantage is they're, they're not quite as dense, so you don't get quite the level of information that you do from the LiDAR. And so um, I mentioned our localization scheme uses a LiDAR inertial kind of fusion. So you know, one of our faculty members is looking at a radar inertial fusion and how we could use that and how maybe we can replace maybe a LiDAR sensor on an aerial vehicle instead of, um, we use the millimeter wave radar instead of the LiDAR. Uh, another really interesting aspect of this is that uh, you know, everything's got to be real time. And so in the academic field, oftentimes we can come up with algorithms and uh, you know it looks really good on paper and maybe there's some really nice theoretical justifications with this, a particular algorithm. But it's often uh, the case where it's really hard to transition that to a real-time application where you've got a smaller computer and you don't have all the, um, the computational resources you need to really run that algorithm at real time. And so the balance is, you know, how do you generate algorithms that have the right sort of theoretical properties and robustness properties, but also implement them in real time. And so we find a lot of our decisions are kind of a trade-off between these two things, um, which is, again, it's a really interesting uh, part of research to be involved in, like right on this verge of deployable stuff, but also um, stuff that has, you know, theoretical justification. Do you feel there's uh, benefits of kind of working outside that kind of simulated environment and kind of being a little more in the field? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the nice things we've been able to do is uh, develop some relationships with the local mines here in Colorado. So the Edgar Mine, the Heidi Mine, uh, the International Prize Mine. So these are all gold and, and, and silver mine kind of places. And uh, so we, yeah, we have to deploy in these environments. And so it's one thing, like I said, doing it on a computer or doing it in, you know, in your laboratory environment. Uh, we've also... Uh, got relationships with a company called Geotech in Denver, um, so they're, they're an engineering firm, uh, but they have a big warehouse down in the middle of Denver, and so they've let us uh, bring our robots down and test. And uh, so again, that's where you really iron out the kinks, is the real real deployments, and it's very it's pretty consistent across all the teams that compete these challenges. The ones that do well are the ones that get out and do full-scale deployments and practice and iron out all the kinks. You know, it's, 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 again, it's one thing to kind of build your robot and kind of assume everything is going to work correctly and then you get out there and you know you run into all the small little things that you didn't think of right and so so one of the mantras for our team is to really get out and test and not only test but practice you know just go through walk through our sample deployments and then just kind of iron out all the little kinks that come up uh, how are you preparing for your next challenge later this year um do you know what is required of this next challenge um or are you yeah that's a good question so darpa usually lets us know about six weeks to eight weeks ahead of time kind of what the environment might look like so we know it's supposed to be a natural cave and beyond that at this point we really don't know <laughs> so um, like my team this year we decided uh, to take a little more holistic view we had the urban challenge uh, last week we've got the cave in six months rather than tailor a solution to either one of those we decided to work on technologies and approaches that would be common to both um, and so what it meant for this particular run, you know, we didn't have everything quite ready for prime time, but um, we've got a lot of experience with a lot of this stuff now. And so for CAVE, you know, we, we generally
generally know what kind of situations we're going to be put in. There's going to be boulders, there's going to be rough terrain, uh, there's going to be significant elevation change, um, there might be mud, there might be water, there might be dust. And so, you know, having to have the experience of deploying in some of the mines around here, like we've got a good idea of kind of what those issues are. Um, I think the biggest challenge going from urban to uh, cave in this case uh, will be 3D localization. Um, so, you know, if you're just kind of moving around on a plane or like a flat surface, that localization problem, which is replacing GPS, um, that's a lot easier to do. But if you've got significant elevation change, like you're going up, up hills or down into caverns and things like that, that Z direction is, is typically kind of hard to observe. And so getting good estimates of your state when you're kind of, you know, uh, zooming around in these kind of environments uh, is difficult. So that's just one of the technology pieces we're really focusing on. Um, the other is the terrain assessment. Um, so for the urban, you know, it was a, an abandoned nuclear facility, so you can imagine concrete and flat surfaces, and yes, there was some clutter and some other things in some of the rooms, but uh, for the most part, it, or, you know, you have these sort of human-accessible flat surfaces. So uh, for natural cave, I'm assuming that we're going to have boulders and uneven terrain and gravel and sand and all sorts of stuff. So understanding um, from the sensors you have on board, uh, you know, what we can drive over, what we should drive around, and then tailoring that to the specific capabilities of each of the robots. Um, that's the, those are the two main things we're focusing on for the next one. So um, in what ways were the sec was the second challenge kind of a step up from the first one? Of course, you have the elevation, but what um, kind of new uh, kind of like approaches does that require when you're trying to move between multiple levels? Um, how did you kind of tackle that issue? Yeah, so that one's hard. So there's, I think there's two major pieces to that one. So one is the mobility part. Um, so the Husky, like, uh, four-wheeled platforms we have, uh, you know, those are great for flat or maybe even inclined surfaces, but they do not do well on stairs. And, and the stairs we're talking about are these confined ones with, like, a landing in the middle that turns 180 degrees, right? So these aren't, you don't, you don't just tumble down the stairs. you got to actually turn and navigate. <laughs> um, so that aspect was, was so is increasing the, um, the challenge on the mobility part of it. Um, they also, there was also a lot of clutter and a, and a bunch of other things, and, and they had high ceilings and some of the artifacts they hid kind of on these catwalks and things. So, you know, having this, the ability to explore the 3D space uh, was one of those. Um, and then uh, also for, for urban, I think, um, you know, having those level changes, you need the localization piece to work well. Uh, but also, it's, a, it's more of a confined space. And so you've got to have a little bit better idea of what your robots are capable of, what you can drive through, what kind of crevices you can fit through, or what types of robots are good for each of those different pieces. Um, now, going to cave, we're, the mobility aspect's going to ramp up even more. Um, so we'll have all the natural features that we didn't have in the urban environment. Um, and so the ability to deal with those, and top of all the, the, uh, the, the clutter and all the other stuff that's going to happen, mud, water, um, it's just, again, it's a very, very significant challenge. Um, is there anything else you would like listeners to know about this challenge and about your work? Yeah, I just, uh, well, I really want to reiterate that uh, we have such a such an impressive um, and talented group of students working with us, and uh, we're so fortunate here at, at University of Colorado. Um, 
you know, we spent a lot of time uh, hiring new faculty in engineering over the last five years, and our program is just, in terms of excitement and quality and everything else, is just through the roof now. Um, so I, I personally moved my lab here about uh, five years ago, and, uh, and and one of those goals was to help build up the robotics program here. Um, and uh, we've had uh, you know tremendous support from the dean's office, um, but you know just the, the quality of students we're bringing into the program now, um, and just the talent level is, is just amazing. And I, we're so fortunate to have the ability to work with these students here within the state of Colorado. All right, uh, Professor Humbert, thank you for uh, calling in today. Wonderful. Thank you, John, for taking the time. I appreciate it.